This is Industry Matters, powered by VGM, a podcast about community, belonging, and connections. VGM is a member service organization uniting large and small, durable and home medical equipment providers across the nation. VGM also serves the respiratory, complex rehab, wound care, women's health mastectomy, home accessibility, and orthotics and prosthetics communities. Hi and welcome. Today we have Dan Fedor and Rhonda Burmester talking about Rule CMS 1713 related to change in orders and face-to-face. Dan and Rhonda, what's the difference between the master list and the required list? When CMS came out with this final rule, the 1713, back in January 1, when it was implemented, we heard about it on January 2nd as an industry. I mean, obviously we knew it was coming, this final rule, but we just didn't know when and we didn't expect it that quickly. But what they did with this ruling is they put a put a lot of HIGPIC code to say a lot. They included a lot of lists. So they went through the Affordable Care Act 6407, all of those HIGPIC codes that we know that are on that on that list, along with the prior authorization list that had HIGPIC codes that were potentially um, going to be a, a prior auth. And among some other lists, they just put everything on this master list. So they call it a master list. And what it means is that out of all these codes, there could be some follow-up requirements that come from that. So you could have a prior auth on certain codes, or it could be the face-to-face with having a written order within six months of that face-to-face. So what we're waiting on right now is that required list. We don't know when that will be re- released. We've heard on the street that there is something coming out, and we've kind of seen that change happen um, already with them changing the program integrity manual you look at chapters three and five, there's been some updates and changes of the way they have it formatted. So I feel like that's the next step is for them to come out with this required list that will say, okay, these HICPIC codes will require face-to-face and have certain elements that they have to meet with the subjective and objective information at face-to-face. And then that order would need to be within six months for that other face-to-face. So that face-to-face would have to be prior to the order being written. So there are 412 codes on that master list. And it's interesting to see what some of those codes are on the list because of the way they shuffled some of the combining some of these together. For those of us that have, do like respiratory items or even some of the bed and metal, the standard manual wheelchair was on an ACA list, but now they've taken that off. It is not on the master list. Same with the nebulizer, the E0570 was on an initial list. Now it's not. So they were They've done some shuffling around. They've added things to it, such as on oxygen. Prior to this final rule that came out in January, the only codes that were on that list for oxygen were the stationary, portable, and the home filling system and the content. And they've taken the content off and added all the other codes. So it's interesting what they've done. But um, as of now, we're still waiting on this required list that will come off that master list. Uh, Just one point I'd like to add in there uh, for everyone is the... So the required list, uh, as Rhonda mentioned, use the K-1, the standard manual chair as an example. It's no longer an option uh, to be on the required list because as Rhonda said, it was removed from the master list. So if it's not on the master list, it can't be picked. Uh, So for those of you that were doing, uh, providing manual wheelchairs, the standard manuals in the past and had to have a face-to-face for it, you know that will not be a requirement, uh, cannot be selected. But right now, as it stands today, only PMDs and diabetic shoes require a face-to-face. They're still 
statutorily required. But Rhonda, I think you'll agree, we both still advise to obtain face-to-face for those items that we know are on the master list and probably will be selected for the required list as they were prior to January 1st. Absolutely, I totally agree with, with that because as we've learned as an industry, it's not about having an order to dispense and build a product. It's about making sure that the documentation exists in the medical record. And if you, as a supplier, don't obtain that documentation, you're at a high risk in an audit situation, whether that's a prepay or postpay. So that could be two, three years down the road, and it's not worth the risk. You know, when you look at these policies, there's a lot of, depending on which one you're looking at, there's a lot of coverage criteria that needs to be met. And the only way you're going to know that is making sure that patient has been in person to see that doctor and they document the proper information based off the item that they're ordering. So I, I always say we've already trained the doctors to make sure that they bring those patients in and do a visit. Don't untrain them. Let it be because it's hard, hard enough the way it is. So just make sure that patients are still going in to see the doctors. What are the requirements on the SWO and what do you recommend? On the standard written order, when they changed this on January 1st, they indicated that the standard written order only requires the beneficiary's name or MBI, the order date, the length of need of the diagnosis, and the general description of the item, the physician's name or NPI. The length of need and diagnosis were not included as actual requirements. However, we still advise, and I'll, I'll defer to Rhonda after I finish here, uh, that it should probably still be included, even though it's not a requirement. Um, so to back up a minute, I mentioned the beneficiary's name or MBI, order date, description of the item, the physician's name or NPI are actually the only required items. But again, we advise the length of need still needs to be somewhere and it needs to be found. So it seems if we keep it on the standard written order and the diagnosis, definitely uh, beneficial for uh, documentation purposes. Um, would you agree, Rhonda? I would agree with, <laughs> and this is interesting, and many of you that know Dan and I, when we presented how we we have our discussions in front of you all with what we agree and don't agree on. I, the length of need, yeah, and if it's not on there, I, I would, that's the only thing missing. I wouldn't go chase it down. But the diagnosis, right. I, I, I would prefer that in a medical record because that's where they'll look for it at. But if you're getting it on the order and, and it's been successful for you, then still get it. Um, absolutely. But if you haven't been, I wouldn't make up a new SWO just to get a diagnosis on there because it really should be in the medical record. When they list, there's a list of diagnosis codes that are in the medical record. That's where it should be. So and I think yeah. most have done that anyway. Yeah, and I would agree. Sorry, Rhonda. I, I would, we do agree, actually, because I, I would recommend it, but if you don't have it, I wouldn't chase it down. I, I, I would agree. Right. I wouldn't chase it down and it'd be a deal breaker to move forward. But if you could get it, it, it doesn't hurt to have that on there. Correct. And I think most physicians are just in habit of writing it on there because they do it for everything else anyway, for lab work or medication. So they're in a habit of, of adding it on the order and that's fine. But yeah, don't go chasing it down if that's the only thing that you're missing because it'll be in your medical record and that's where the auditors will look for it. I would like that one other thing on the SWO is the description of the items. This has always been a, a hot topic that I get from the members I work with is what is required as far as the description. And I actually helped a member out yesterday that 
they had for CPAP, I'm going to talk CPAP, they just had on their order, it just, just said mask, didn't have anything else. And they're like, is this acceptable to even submit the claim off of? As of now, technically, with this S the requirements for the SWO, yeah, you can do that. However, if it doesn't have nasal or full face in the medical record, because you still have to know that, if it's not listed in the medical record, what type of mask, it will deny. They want to see the type of mask. So, um, so you can go ahead and dispense off of the order saying mask, but once you submit a claim, make sure that order at least has nasal mask or full face mask, whichever one the patient gets at the time of the setup. That way you don't have to worry about um, looking for that in the medical record or getting the doctor to document it because they won't. It's hard enough to get the information we need in a medical record, let alone saying, doctor, make sure you write the, the nasal mask. Um, they'll look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> so, so CPAP is one that we as an industry um, have been working on with, with CMS and the DME Max trying to get some leniency on that, but they stuck to their guns saying it's, it's just best to have on the order it says nasal mask or full face or whatever the patient got that if you want to be brain specific. Great. Thank you. That was very helpful on the SWO from both of you. So let's switch gears just a little bit. Face-to-face, who would have thought we were talking about not having things face-to-face or what virtual health or telehealth might look like? So what do you think about telehealth? Do you think it will be allowed beyond the COVID public health emergency that we're currently under? So currently, before, before I address the future of telehealth, when we were talking earlier about the required list and currently that a PMD, a power mobility device, and diabetic shoes require a face-to-face, and again, we recommended continuing on with it. During the public health emergency right now, telehealth is acceptable. So uh, that, that is one way, you know, right now, when we're trying to avoid face-to-face contact, to meet that face-to-face requirement, you can do that via telehealth. As far as going forward, um, we do believe that it, it will be uh, allowed beyond the public health emergency based on information that we've heard and seen somewhat recently. So there'll be more to come, of course, in the future. And I know Rhonda has something to add on that, but we, I believe, you know, this is something, the future of this uh, documentation practice, more, you know, more convenient, obviously, and less of a a burden on the patient to have to get in to see their their physician. So I think this will be um, beyond public health emergency. Yeah, absolutely. It it appears that they've welcomed, I guess they meaning Medicare has welcomed the telehealth with, especially the DME industry. Um, as you all know, in the past, we've had uh, there's been a lot of restrictions of telehealth during the pandemic when they could see how it worked with patients and and the physicians been successful as far as I'm concerned or I've heard. And I feel like it'll be the new a new trend if you want to call it that coming forward. And it does appear from reading some of the language that. It will be, you know, an option down the road once we're even through the pandemic. So that's a good thing for the industry. But yeah, Dan said there'll be more to come. We're keeping our eyes on any new information that is released with or by CMS or anything in the federal register. But there was a change request that came out a few weeks ago. And as it reads, it does appear that telehealth is acceptable. But I'm interested to see once they get more details from that, what it says, but it does appear that it's a new trend for the DME industry. So that's a good news for us. Does it require audio and video? It does. 
and I know Dan will talk on this because he has seen this a lot, especially in the PMD industry, but telehealth is audio and video. That's what telehealth is all about is where the doctor can see that patient and, you know, obviously talk to them to do their assessment. It is a requirement. I know during this pandemic, CMS has said they would allow just audio, um, and that's for those patients, you know, that may not have a smartphone that has that all those um, options with the technology, or they may not have a computer that has a camera. They have to think about those patients that have limited access. So I know during the pandemic, they allowed just the, just the audio to be acceptable, but I don't think that would be an option outside of the pandemic once this is over. Um, one thing I will find interesting with the telehealth is how they will allow it in certain policies. And what I mean by that is let's, let's talk about the oxygen policy. You have to have an oxygen saturation to get somebody qualified in a normal environment. I don't know how you can do that with telehealth to put an uh, oximeter on a patient to check their fat level. So we'll see where they go with it. But, um, but yes, it, it is audio and video. Do you have anything to add to that, Dan? I do. And I would just like to add in, and I'll, I'll focus on um, mobility um, since I deal with that regularly. For power mobility, you know, for example, as Rhonda just mentioned with the um, saturation, with doing the, the testing for oxygen, it'd be difficult to do. And mentioned that during the public health emergency, audio is acceptable. However, for a power mobility device face-to-face, even though telehealth is acceptable, audio and video would be required. The reason is the documentation that's needed is still required. Uh, the clinical indications have not been waived for power mobility devices, for example. So all the coverage criteria still must be met. So that's why the physician doing the face-to-face, if it's not an in-person face-to-face, would need to do that via telehealth, and it can be audio and video to accomplish. One example is they need to identify you know, the patient's limitations. They need to identify uh, the manual muscle test, some objective measurements that will all, always be challenging, even more challenging with audio and video, almost impossible with just audio to accomplish that. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Dan. What about continued need for ongoing rental supplies and repairs to DME? What is acceptable as continued need? Yes, this is a regular question that both Dan and I get, and I'm ongoing. <laughs> but can, as you know, as an industry, we have to prove continued medical need with patients to make sure that they still need the product, the equipment, and that they're using it. And the use, obviously, as a supplier, you'll know they're using it. Um, because they'll contact you for supplies or maybe a repair or questions on it, so you know they're using it. But Medicare and even other payers want to make sure the patient still needs it as well. If the patient has it sitting there in the corner and they're not using it, obviously they don't need it. So the need does come from the physician, so the physician would have to justify the need. Then there are various ways to prove the need, and it depends on what piece of equipment it's piece of equipment determines how you're going to prove that. So I'll talk CPAP. We can prove continued need with an order that we get every year because there are supplies on there. So you would you get an order annually. You're not only meeting a state requirement because you um, will have a state law that says you'll need that order to dispense the supplies because generally orders are only good for 12 months. But you're also going to prove the continued need because once that doctor signed off on it, then they agreed that's what the patient needs. So that's for supplies. For ongoing rentals, it's a different different cat, I guess you want to call it that, where you have the need 
would have to be in the medical record. And it's not that the patient needs to see the physician to have that in-person visit, but the doctor can justify that need in the medical record. Hospital beds and wheelchairs and you know, there's some DME items that don't have supplies with them. It's just the actual equipment themselves. So the only way to prove that need is generally through the doctor document the medical record. And I know Dan's got some things to add here too, so I'll let him take over. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll pick up with repairs uh, for DME and continued need and how that applies. I receive this question very often. I know you do as well, Rhonda. So for a repair, there, there's four options for continued need. One of them is uh, an ongoing or a prescription for supplies. As Rhonda mentioned for the CPAP, that could work for repairing the CPAP machine because you're getting a prescription for a supply. The second would be a change in prescription. So unless there's a change in the condition and change in prescription, that one's not applicable to repairing DME. The third is a CMN or DIF. So if an item has a CMN or a DIF, then that could serve for the ongoing continued need for items that have it. What I deal with regularly is mobility products with power wheelchairs, scooters, and manual chairs. Now they don't have a CMN or DIF. So the only acceptable documentation is to have something in the medical record uh, documented in the medical record indicating the need, the ongoing need for the item. The item doesn't have to be re-justified. It's already been done. Medical necessity has been established. But they do have to indicate the patient still needs the product, is still using it. And again, that does need to be in the medical record. A prescription is not acceptable for that because it's not part of the medical record. Uh, that has to be timely, they say, within 12 months preceding the date of the repair. Um, and the date of the repair is the date that the item is returned to the patient, the delivery date after it's repaired. So um, that's that's really important. We think that's something that we you know we continue to talk about and will continue to discuss in the future. Important for ongoing uh, repairs as well as uh, audit purpose. Yeah, and I just want to add to that too is you know they talk about CMNs and DIFs being a part of that option to prove continued need. And when we talk CMN, I want to make sure everybody understands CMN or DIF. It's the CMS forms that are out there. That's the 484 for oxygen. You have them for you know, your seat lift chairs, your pneumatic compression devices. You know, those are the CMNs. There's five of them. And then the DIF for the external infusion pump. That's when they say that, that's what they're talking about. Because I know when I say this, many of us say CMN for an order because some of our billing softwares just call it an order a CMN. So just be careful with what language you're using because oxygen CMN don't get an, I would recommend not getting a CMN every year on, on your oxygen patients because that could cause you some issues in your billing. You get your initial one on oxygen and you get a research 12 months down the road for group one patients. And you would only need to revise after that. Otherwise, just get an order from a doctor to show that they need oxygen after that. But just be careful with those CMN and DIP, that language. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Rhonda. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, just one last thing on the medical record. Uh, I mentioned that that would serve for continued need for a DME repair, for mobility, and some other items. The patient doesn't actually have to see the physician or the ordering practitioner if they're willing to document it without seeing them. So it doesn't have to be a face-to-face -face isn't required for that part. It could be documented without seeing. If it's a lifelong on a condition that's not going to be reversed 
and they know, yes, this person, this person will require this item, it could be documented. It could also be done via telehealth now. Well, that's, that's another uh, benefit of the telehealth program, uh, if you do want to see them before documenting it. So I just wanted to add that last point in there. No, and it's very important that you added that because we as an industry automatically think if I need a medical record, that means the patient needs to see the doctor. Well, on this continued need, they don't actually have to go in person unless there's a reason for it, obviously. But if it's that repair, like Van said, and the doctor knows that it's a condition that they have and they still need the, whatever, the wheelchair or bed or whatever it is, obviously the doctor can document it in the medical record without seeing the patient in person. Well, now that you have my head spinning, <laughs> there's just a lot, <laughs> a lot of intricacies on what you can do and what you can't do and when you need face-to-face or when you need doctor and all of that. So um, glad we have the both of you and your expertise on all the little tiny details of, of each thing, whether it be repairs or rental or supplies. So as we wrap up here, I heard there's a new ABN. Can you talk about that, and when is it effective? Yes, this is important to talk about because there is a new one. As you know, in the industry, they update the ABNs every few years where they, the Office of Management and Budget, a budget have to um, review them. And it was up for renewal in 2020, and they finally just got it renewed. So there is a new one out. It is on our VGM website, and it's also on CMS's website. I haven't looked to see if it's on CGS and Iridian's website. I would hope so, but you can at least find it on BGM's website. But there is a new one with a new expiration date of June 30th, 2023. So you'll see that in, I don't remember if it's in the top right corner or bottom left corner. I didn't have one in front of me, but you'll see it on the ABN. They haven't changed anything else on the ABN. I compared the new one versus the old one, and they, all the elements are the same. They haven't changed that. They just updated with that new expiration date. They have also said on CMS's website that this new one is mandatory to start being used on August 31st, 2020. So just start using it now. Download the form, share it with whoever is involved in the ABN, but then the business, the intake, the billing, obviously your delivery text, your clinician, make sure that they are using the new one and just do it now. That way you don't miss the date of August 31st. You don't want to run into problems down the road after August, you know, on September 1 and beyond if you use the old version just because of a date. So that's why it's so important to get it into your software and into your forms library. Just do it now. Anything you want to add to the ABN? Because I know they're still being used. I still get questions on them during the pandemic, and that's perfectly fine. And it's important to utilize them. That's what they're there for. No, I think you covered it all, Rhonda. That's that's great and good good information, good advice to everyone. Okay, they've also um, updated the certificates of medical necessity. So that's CMS 484 and the others with you know the other four, along with the disc forms. Those have been updated as well with the new expiration date. Um, and those are also on our VGM website. So if you want to upload those into your software, you can do so. They haven't, CMS or Medicare has not said that I've seen where it says start using this new CMN or DIS form as of whatever date. They haven't said that. I would just start using them now. It doesn't hurt. And only use them on your new initial patients or who um, need to do a research or, or revise. But don't go chasing down the CMN just because of the new date start adding it into your daily operations now. So get those in your forms library as well. 
Great. Anything else before we close? I'll just add, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of things, as Lindy even mentioned earlier, there's a lot of things that can make your head spin, <laughs> especially with the pandemic and then all these new rules coming out. And we understand that uh, you look at these and you're not on these rules and you're reading them and you're not sure what to do. And that's why we're here to help you. So make sure that you reach out to um, Dan or I and you can call us or text us, you know, how to get a hold of us or email us. And we are more than happy to answer your questions. Even doing one-on-one conversations, I have found that, I know Dan has too, where you maybe have to get your team together and you're having a virtual call with them to just go over some questions you may have on um, whatever the product is that tends to be a, a tug of war within your company. So we're happy to do that with you guys, especially now since we're, you don't see us out at the conferences that are normally going on and being able to get those questions answered. So let us know how we can help. Absolutely. Right. That's a great reminder of the benefit of being a VGM and or U.S. Rehab member and the access to expertise like Dan and Rhonda for anything that our members need. So just a reminder to VGM.com has all information for membership, including VGM membership and all of our membership communities of which U.S. Rehab is our complex rehab membership community. And Rhonda is an expert on more of the VGM respiratory HME side. And Dan is more of an expert on our complex rehab side, although they definitely cross over a lot as well. Thank you guys so much. Have a great rest of your day.